Deep Faith Nine, Season 4. Greetings friends, this is Will Nicholas and welcome back to Season 4 of the Deep Faith 9 podcast and what an exciting season um, Season 4 is. We'll really be picking up a whole lot of themes and threads as we advance towards the Dominion War uh, and we get a whole range of new characters uh, and new personalities thrown in to the series. As well as that, we're going to have a whole range of uh, new uh, characters and personalities joining us for the podcast as well, um, with uh, some uh, some fantastic international guests, uh, such as uh, author Morris Broadus and Afro-American futurist Dr. Roger Sneed, uh, as well as uh, some of your old favourites like Noel Mackay uh, and, uh, and Lindsay Cullen. Uh, will be joining us. Uh, and today we've got actually, uh, well, I'll save who we've got today until after I do the synopsis. So let's jump straight into the synopsis uh, for The Way of the Warrior. Uh, the crew of Deep Space Nine is preparing for a possible attack by the Dominion. There is a drill to find shapeshifters on the station, and the station is retrofitted for defence. Suddenly, a massive Klingon flagship decloaks and it's General Martok. He's not alone. An entire Klingon fleet has been stationed nearby. Sisko welcomes them and Martok claims that the fleet is at Deep Space Nine to fight with the Federation against the Dominion. Soon, trouble starts. Klingons harass Morn, they beat up Garrick, they hijack Cassidy Yates' ship uh, to look for shapeshifters and they continue checking ships outside the Bajoran space. Sisko doesn't trust what they're doing anymore. An, uh, an old friend, Worf, comes from Starfleet uh, to find out what the Klingons are really doing, and we discover that uh, the Klingons are actually here to preemptively strike against um, where they suspect the shapeshifters may be. The Way of the Warrior. Uh, to join me today to, to talk about this uh, is um, uh, Professor James McGrath, uh, who is the Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in the New Testament Language and Literature uh, at Butler University and is known for his work on early Christianity, um, criticism of um, Christ myth theory and the analysis of religion in science fiction. Uh, and uh, it's fabulous to have uh, James with us today. How are you today, James? Doing very well. Thank you for uh, having me back on your podcast. It's always great to talk about uh, Deep Space Nine. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, I thank you for getting up so early in the morning. Um, it, it must be, what, past four in the morning for you at the moment. Is that right? That's uh, right. Over on your side yeah, of the planet. Good calculations there. <laughs> Yes, so I'm at the end of the day, you're at the beginning, but today we're going to be working through the way of the warrior, this double episode that starts off season four. And doesn't it begin with a bang? What are some of the things that leap out for you as you've rewatched the episode? Yeah, so it's been quite a few years since I watched Deep Space Nine. Uh, I've gone back and rewatched several episodes where religious themes, things that uh, it's relevant to talk about in class or write about. 
are uh, featured in an episode. Uh, this is one that I hadn't rewatched because it doesn't have uh, quite so many of those themes, but there's still a lot that's interesting in it. And there are things that uh, jumped out at me that I don't remember jumping out at me in quite the same way. Uh, we know that, spoiler alert, uh, things develop between uh, Jedzia and Worf uh, and take an interesting mm -hmm. turn, uh, but you get some of that, uh, that spark visible in this episode if you're on the lookout for it, but I'm not sure that I particularly picked up on that. Uh, I certainly wasn't looking for that <laughs> the first time I watched the episode. Indeed, we get that first meeting, um, and Jadzia um, uh, says a phrase in Klingon. Yeah. I, I think uh, Worf actually notices or, or recalls that uh, Jadzia was Curzon right. and, and makes a statement that Curzon was a, is an honoured person to his people. Yeah. Uh, and then Jadzia utters a phrase in Klingon, which actually sets Worf yeah. back a bit. Look, Ajikchim Tala. So, do you share with people what it is or do you leave them to look it up themselves yeah well 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 interesting it's it's a very judzia phrase for wharf so uh what, what she says to him uh, after he says uh curzon is a is a, a wise and honored person for my people um she says but i have much better legs is what she actually says um and so that that explains wharf's kind of uh his uh his his uh, uh i guess almost bashful response mm -hmm. to to that uh, so almost from the get-go, we've got uh, a, 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 I guess, a foreshadowing of what their relationship will be like um, yeah. between them. Now, just between you, between you and me and the people who listen to your podcast, obviously, how many people do you think actually like are watching the dialogue and understood that, uh, or went and quickly looked it up? Ah, uh, look, uh, th there are there are some very nerdy folk yeah. like myself <laughs> that actually like to search up those Easter eggs, but. But I do remember the very first time I watched it, I thought to myself, because it, it, it certainly, without even knowing the language, there's certainly something in that exchange um, that, that jumps out. Um, uh, that and the exchange that uh, Worf has with Major Kira. Um, he, he tells her she's got a nice hat uh, and she's quite embarrassed yeah. about having just come from the holodeck. Um, um, yeah, so Worf gets to meet a bunch of the cast, and and for for long term trekkers, we we really um, we're familiar with the character mm -hmm. of Worf, the, the 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 Klingon adopted by Russian parents, raised on Earth, but trying to um, understand his culture, um, and um, and and uh, known to Miles O'Brien, um, and and also to us because of Next Generation. Yeah, and that's that really connects with one of the things that sort of jumped out at me in uh, rewatching this episode and makes you know, maybe a less direct connection with the kinds of things that I usually talk about and teach about and write about uh, related to religion than some episodes, some other episodes do. But uh, that question of culture really is to the fore, right? Mm. Uh, we have sort of the, on the one hand, the culture or cultures uh, the identity of Worf as somebody who is Klingon but not really raised in that culture feels like an outsider, uh, and you know, even even in relation to his own culture as he's reconnected with it uh, over the course of his life, we we definitely get the sense that he still feels like something of an outsider, and of course the fact that he's involved in Starfleet uh, positions him differently, and so he's mm. at the very least like 
you know, sort of a long time uh, expatriate living, uh, living somewhere overseas for a long time and feeling a connection with the culture that he resides in and a disconnect as a result with uh, one's own culture. But then there's, there's also the question of the alliance between the Federation and the Klingons so that there's, there's a, uh, a move away from the warlike elements of Klingon culture in the context of that, to at least some extent. But it's there as a, a constant uh, theme, even when it's uh, being repressed, right? We don't have the sense that they've, they've moved away from it culturally. They feel like they are being deprived of something that is, is yeah. really important to them. And that really is why you know DS Nine does such interesting things related to religion. Uh, it's it really is doing something that's even broader than religion, uh, culture, which is which of which religion is one facet. And so yeah. the question of cultural pluralism is one that is you know is very timely today, and very often people talking about at least some other cultures will say. Well, yeah, that's their culture. We have our culture, and so we can't judge them. We expect them not to judge us, and things like that. And yet, when it intersects with something that's particularly important to us, uh, if we feel that, you know, for instance, that uh, women or religious minority or something are undervalued in a particular culture, then then we may feel strongly about it, uh, despite mm. lip service that we sometimes pay to cultural diversity and things like that. And so it's interesting as as we see the the sort of resurgence of this we see how how easily the alliance that was there and had been been there for some time uh, I can't remember exactly how long the the has supposed to, is supposed to have passed you probably know off the top of your head uh, it's way too long for me well, this is where I can uh, or, I can nerd out yeah. a little bit because uh, just just last week um, uh, my Voyager my Voyager and crew Elizabeth and Lindsay and myself Elizabeth Rain who who you know um, we uh, we recorded a bonus feature for our Patreons on the Undiscovered Country right uh, which is the fifth yeah. Star Trek movie um, which actually contains mm-hmm. the Kitama Accords mm-hmm. Um, where the historic agreement of peace between the Federation and the Klingons takes place. And we see that Kirk's involved in that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, Curzon is said to have been also a a significant player in the Kitama Accords, even though we don't see him in that movie. That would have been a wonderful Mm -hmm. thing for them to have foreshadowed back in 1991 when that movie came out, that Curzon might have been there. But um, those accords have lasted like 80 years um to the to this point um and and in this episode it's quite timely that we're we're doing this after that 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 uh that this is the episode where the, that that piece breaks down and i i can't help but thinking at the moment in terms of our own current affairs mm-hmm. and culture that you know like 1990 uh the early 1990s was that time where where things began to to um become uh, the Cold War started to come to an end. The the U.S. and Russia started to um, modify its politics. We've got uh, uh, agreements between um, the, the the then President Bush and Gorbachev to to take down some of the neutral zone and uh, and uh, militarization of of Eastern Europe. Uh, and now we see ourselves today at a point where sort of. NATO is 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 growing and Russia is threatened and there's tension in the Ukraine. So there's some really mm-hmm. interesting 
socio-political parallels between those those two uh, movies and where we are with our, our our global political situation today yeah thank you thank you for pointing that out i, I knew i was going to uh, botch it and say you know is it about a century and, if it, and you you would then have a quick comeback and say actually it's it's closer to 80 years or something like that so i knew i wasn't <laughs> going to get it quite right uh if i tried to estimate um yeah unfortunately yeah it yeah, my brain is much more of a, a humanities brain than a math brain, and so uh, even, even dates related to my own field or my own life, I sometimes am like, so how long has it been? Things. So uh, it's good to have somebody oh, who I've been can... blessed with a trivia brain. So. <laughs> but I did find myself thinking, you know, as I was thinking about sort of Klingon culture, you know, this, uh, you know, that gives gives the title, at least on one level, right, to the, the episode uh, that, you know, the warrior is sort of the the uh, stereotypical positive figure in Klingon culture, mm, and yep. you know it's interesting to draw those connections. You know, think about the two ends of the Kittimer Accords and the Cold War and what's going on in our time. Because even even before I made those connections, I found myself thinking as I rewatched the episode about the resurgence of things like Christian nationalism. And things that have been written by uh, scholars and historians about uh, sort of masculinity in, for instance, Mm -hmm. in American Christian culture, which has not always been the same thing, but has been defined particularly in the the Cold War era and beyond uh, in a way that is coming to the fore in certain circles in my own country today, in a way that has Mm -hmm. that that sort of that uh, machismo and has... that you know sort of uh doing things with guns and all the the kinds of things uh sort of poising oneself as a as a warrior of course in the context of the united states it's it's something very different than it is in klingon culture at least in certain respects Mm. but i think there is the sense in which some people today feel like there is a a past of of war heroism that they are being deprived of participating in. And so I think people mm-hmm. are sort of trying to style themselves as those kinds of figures, uh, you know, carrying guns when you don't need to and making the United yep. States a more dangerous place because uh, we haven't uh, had the courage to do what Australia did uh, after it, uh, you know, when it famously dealt with uh, similar problems to the ones that the United States faces on a, uh, if not a daily, then certainly a weekly basis. And so that aspect of, uh, of American culture and contemporary culture and connections between Klingon and uh, my own contexts uh, really, really did jump out at me as I watched this. And of course, the, the current resurgence of Christian nationalism was not something that had happened yet in the way it's happened very recently the last time I watched this episode. And so that was a new context. From, and it gave me a new perspective yep. from which to watch the episode. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting because uh, you know, uh, like when this episode was was uh, released back in the mid nineties, um, you know, America was culturally and economically and and militarily, I guess, at a very um, in a very powerful position at the height of its um, of of its of its uh, identity. And and I mean, uh, I think there's a real a real feeling, not just in America, but around the world, that that there is something fading about Western democracy. That um, that there is a 
uh, a nostalgic look back to today's and even in the church I see this when we're talking about um, the the decline of of the mainstream church here in mm. Australia I don't know if that's a similar conversation happening in 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 the United States but um, there, there is that sense in which people will look back 30 40 50 years ago and say well we had big Sunday schools and we had uh, we had large congregations and 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 we had a heyday of of Christendom um, in in the modern era which um, today um, the church is not in the centre of culture, so so I guess in some ways we can relate to from a completely different reason. We're not saying it's a good day to die, but we're 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 saying you know well, you know um, what would it be like if we could reclaim that heritage? Um, can can we go forward by looking back? Yes, and there's something that is is directly related and very similar happening in the context of the United States, and that's why I found my my mind turning to. Uh, particularly the the recent book uh, Jesus and John Wayne and about how particularly since the 1950s there's this invention of a a form of American culture that has certain stereotypes about gender and things like that uh, has a certain militarism to it and in the context of the Cold War of course you have uh, one, one significance of that rhetoric in the context of you know the present day, what's interesting is you know I found it interesting that you talked in terms of a of a, a nostalgia for sort of the heyday of democracy. Uh, you know, certainly in the United States, democracy uh, to the extent that we have supported it, uh, however inconsistently around the world, uh, it has often been sort of through through military involvement and getting ourselves entangled in mm. in uh, the, the the affairs of other nations. Uh, sometimes with their uh, their being happy that that's happening, and sometimes less so, uh, depending on the case. Not so much. But yeah. uh, what's interesting is that it, there are places in Washington, D.C. that are sort of central to democracy as it has emerged in an American context, and yet purportedly in the interest of preserving that democracy, right? supposedly stopping the election from being stolen, we had one of the most direct mm. assaults on American democracy from within. Yeah, and there's there's certainly is something that this episode allows one to explore. Uh, you know, in what ways does does an attempt to recapture a past glory uh, risk actually sort of becoming self defeating in in the way that yep. it emerges and things like that, or the way that it's done, or who does it, or uh, who potentially hijacks it for other ends, and think all those kinds of things. There's a great exchange between um, Worf and Gowron um, in uh, the, chan- the High Chancellor Gowron um, at the end of the episode. Kalos himself said, destroying an empire to win a war is no victory. And ending a battle to save an empire is no defeat. You know, I, I think there were some really interesting exchanges there about the the, the way in which we, we sometimes um, uh, might do the things we do for an agenda we don't really understand. Yeah, indeed. And I think it's it's an indication that you know, one is one has a desire for a heroism that one is not actually sort of practising when one sort of wants to get involved in, in, in violent conflict at all costs because 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you know, even within the context of historic Klingon culture, if we want to talk about that, I mean, we see enough of it that we can probably talk in those terms. It's mm. it's not that you know fighting is you know it it's 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 always characteristic of 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 the way of the warrior in one sense, but on the other hand. Mm. It's it's not fighting for fighting's sake, right? There is there's heroism and yep. honor and there are values that go along with it. And while you you may lose face if you if you compromise, if you uh, abandon pursuit of your goal or things like that, it's not as though uh, there is no room for 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 discussion or for for things to That's right. unfold in a way that ultimately leads to. Yeah, I mean what we the glimpses we get of of the emergence of the Klingon Empire are themselves an indication that you know, there is, you know, an empire is only possible when people, you know, smaller constituencies that were previously fighting with one another come together and find some way to coexist within that framework. And it almost becomes more important when you've got, like, I guess, the, like, without, without a strong honor code, without a strong sense of ritualization, um, without without those structures in place, it would be very easy for a for a for a, a, a violent or aggressive society to fall into anarchy, um, and um, and 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 sometimes when people look at the Klingons from outside without uh, drilling deeper into the culture, they might see an anarchy. You know, like a uh, promotions on a Klingon starship usually result in the death of the superior. Uh, officer, um, uh, you know, and and we see in this episode, um, Martok comes in and hands the, the 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 dagger of the captain that um, um, Ben Sisko forced to retreat from Cassidy Yates's shuttle, um, and Jadzia very quickly puts together that means the captain has been killed, in order to maintain that level of discipline, um, you know, there's that there 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 is a there, the I guess the more chaotic a society might be, um, the more order and structure has to be there in order to actually keep it in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the question of the relationship between identity, honor, you know, and Christianity uh, is is an interesting mm-hmm. one that I think is, you know, at least it's good that it's getting some direct attention, uh, even though uh, it's it's due to places where uh, people associated with uh, the Christian tradition uh, seem to have jettisoned some of the, the the values that come from the teaching of Jesus. Uh, yeah. But you know, there's yep. that question. You know, there really are different Christianities. You know, not just in different national contexts, but in different denominations, in different regional contexts within you know my own uh, nation. And there's there's a long history of uh, America denying that it's engaged in an imperial project uh, when, in fact, uh, that is a, a helpful framework for it. But I mean, we've certainly, at the very least, been uh, engaged in cultural imperialism as we've exported our, our culture and our uh, franchises and our, uh, our uh, pop culture products and things like that around the world, uh, some of which I, I'm sure we share a mutual enjoyment of. But yeah, you know, there are. Well, we're yeah, talking about right, Star Trek yeah. is is probably one yeah, of those devices. Right. Yeah. But on the other hand, yeah, you know, there's, yeah, you know, th- there there are different cultures within the United States that really have never, yeah, you know, never 
been uh, in a harmonious relationship with one another, right? So it's they've never been subsumed, yep. subsumed under uh, one general culture. And so they're, mm. uh, we have within the United States, you know, interestingly enough, even though we're one of the big proponents of the modern nation state and, you know, sort of a, a classic example of, of it in its present form. And yet we have, you know, uh, people, I think all around the world are aware that there's something to do with the South, right? And it's somehow has something, mm. there seem to be, you know, people in different parts of this country that have very different viewpoints. And that includes very different understandings mm. of, of Christianity. And so... Uh, science fiction in general, uh, Star Trek in particular, has sometimes veered towards the the sort of monolithic treatment of you know Klingons or Vulcans. But usually, one mm-hmm. thing that Star Trek has done really well, once the story is given more time and you have more episodes and more encounters with the culture, is to realize that you know among Vulcans, right, there are differences and there are uh, groups that have. Uh, not followed the the way of the dominant culture and have uh, done other yeah. things. Uh, that within the Klingon Empire, right, there are some who think that in the interest of honor, there can be alliances, and there are others who are always sort of pushing back at that. And so it, it does give a really yep. good, uh, a good starting point for conversation about some of the things we we sometimes don't look at very directly in our own context, precisely because... We're hoping, some of us are at least hoping for for a fragile peace to persist among these various constituencies, mm-hmm. which if they break down is leads a country in an, sort of an anarchist direction. And so this is a good episode for you know, having conversations about that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think Deep Space Nine does that the best out of all the Star Trek franchises. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why I chose, chose Deep Space Nine, I mean, we have a... We have a, a. There's no other place in the Star Trek galaxy that I've come across where you have a, a Ferengi, a Cardassian, um, you have Bajorans, you've got Klingons, you've got um, um, <coughs> shapeshifters. So we, you know, and and uh, and and it's also this cosmopolitan meeting place. So so we do get to see glimpses of Vulcans who are involved in resistance movements mm-hmm. uh, in other episodes, and we get to see. Um, you know, uh, different aspects. We even get to see uh, the breaking down of the Federation's veneer as we as we discover some of its its uncomfortable pasts. And one of the things that I find fascinating going forward into Deep Space Nine from here is the collection of of um, marginalised outsiders that seem to to start to grow here. So um, as 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 Quark becomes more familiar with with the Federation and and being a part of the community of Deep Space Nine, um, becomes uh, less less acceptable and less able to connect with his own culture uh, on Ferenginar. Um and uh, and we see Worf has has been uh, in this tension ever since we've we've known him, uh, and continues that. Um, Jadzia um, also um, begins to question a whole range of Trill beliefs and systems, um, and 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 so we, we we've got Odo, uh, and in in this particular uh, episode, you know, Odo and Worf have an interesting exchange, recognizing each other as people who may have to make decisions that are actually counter to their cultural heritage. Um, so, so this this Deep Space Nine in many ways is a massive melting pot for this cultural discussion about 
um, the liminal cultural spaces that, that, that people operate in. Yeah, and Odo and Worf are you know interesting cases because you know the they both have sort of a biological you know heritage as it were you know a sort of a a species mm. identity uh, that connects them with particular places, but sort of culturally you know and in terms of sort of upbringing and where they've spent most of their life. They they are sort of outsiders to that, and you know there mm. are, there are interesting aspects of that as well. I think where uh, you know in I mean in the United States, for instance, uh, also in Australia, there there's a majority population that sort of traces roots elsewhere and things like that. And I think mm. you know, those sorts of histories lead one to sort of search for identity and, you know, makes mm. identity something that's more fraught and more controversial and uh, involves more effort to uh, navigate and figure out in ways that I think, you know, I don't think you see in quite the same way in, in European contexts, right? So discussions of what you mentioned earlier about uh, decline in uh, sort of a historic uh, mainline church or something like that. Uh, doesn't doesn't seem to take the same types of uh, forms in quite the same way, I think in in certain European contexts than they do in probably either Australia or the United States. Yeah, yep. Interestingly, in Australia, well, in Australia we have uh, this heritage um, and uh, I guess a historical pain of the stolen generation in Australia. Um, and uh, and there are some some elements and notes in both Odo and Worf's story of that kind of um, you know infancy, especially in Worf's. I've al- always wondered, you know, if Federation um, uh, starship was the first on the scene um, at um, the 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 massacre that the Romulans um, did on the on the Klingon colony where Worf's parents were, and. Um, and and so they they didn't attempt to repatriate um, him to Kronos um, or, or look for a living relatives, which obviously existed because he has a brother mm. and he has others. Instead, they took him back to Earth and adopted him there. And there there's something there is some a sense in which um, in rescuing him from that environment, Worf has been stolen from his heritage, which is is fascinating. I'm going to be having um, a guest on in a few weeks' time, Anthony Hume, who who's um, uh, a First Nations man uh, from the Yorta Yorta people here in Australia, um, and um, uh, it'll be um, fascinating to actually explore some of those concepts with him uh, um, when he comes on um, later on in the season. Yeah, and given given that in my own context, you know, what's really come to the fore, you know, for uh, and uh, been spoken about in ways that have made people who belong to that uh, particular identity and that particular heritage uh, uncomfortable in talking about it is, you know, what uh, many are now start, at least starting to refer to as sort of white Christianity and white Christian nationalism, white evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, when yep. something is uh, part of, you know, in some way part of a majority culture, it often drops labels that if it were a subculture or connect with a minority, it might feel the need to or have imposed upon it that it it wear those labels uh, because of that. And so the question of whether somebody can be 
you know, uh, you know, Klingon or Dominion can be, you know, anything, right? Can be human and yet brought up in another context, right? If a human is brought up on Vulcan, right, is the fact that they're biologically different from the Vulcans, uh, well, they look at least, you know, a little bit more similar, right? In the case of of Worf and Odo, there's that uh, appearance, although, you know, Odo could look any way he, he wanted to, and so there's that's an interesting aspect of it as well. But in mm. the context of someplace like the United States, white European uh, appearances came to predominate, you know, as a result of the history of, of uh, you know, the colonial era and then beyond. And so if you look European, even if you have arrived relatively recently, you won't be asked, oh, where are you from? Whereas if you are here for, you know, basically, you know, for hundreds of years, for, you know, about as long as the country has existed in anything like its uh, recognizable form, but your appearance is, uh, say, you know, like you're from, say, China or Korea, you know, certain, mm. or Africa or something like that, then, then you are uh, either given a, a label to add on to your American identity, right? A hyphenated identity, or you're asked yeah. where are you from, or things like that. And so, you know, and discussions of that are often particularly uncomfortable, right? Not for the people who have the 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 minority identity so much as the people who are the ones who inflict the uh, the requirement that you have yeah. a hyphenated identity or question your Americanness if you have a different appearance than a European one. And I think I think mm. an episode like this one gives gives a chance to ask, you know, if if you're brought up on Earth, aren't you an Earther, right? Is uh, are you a hu- are you a human? Yeah, and is human is human yeah. and Earther different? Because uh, yeah, you know, I mean, humans clearly are still exporting baseball around the galaxy. Uh, you know, comes they up are. in the yep. in the episode. Uh, so you you're still human even if you're not an Earther, right? And so. Do, you, do we need separate ter- terminology so that we can deal with cases like Worf? Um, mm. you know, are there multiple ways of being human? And can can somebody who is sort of ethnically or biologically or however we'd want to put a Klingon be a, a full participant in that? Or is, is somebody going to be made to feel an outsider simply because of their appearance, mm. in which case that will create in them a longing for connecting with some other identity? And so, mm. so some of the... Some of the disintegrations that we get in a, the context of a, a multicultural society uh, is sort of self-inflicted when one group that's in the majority uh, becomes comes to be treated and demands to be treated as the default and others yeah, are yeah. are kept from feeling like they are full participants because of appearance or something like that so this is a great episode for now talking this about strikes that. yeah and look i mean we were, we were saying we we're not sure that you know whether there were tenuous or strong links yeah. between um you know theology and, and 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 faith in this episode but it occurs to me as we're talking right now that that you know i i follow the revised common lectionary um in my preaching in my local congregation uh and last sunday we had luke chapter four um where where jesus stands up in his hometown of nazareth where he's actually an insider of the same ethnicity um and he he um, proclaims um, those great words of of, of prophecy, um, and and then goes on to actually claim that other ethnic groups are as entitled to that freedom, that liberation, that that sense of 
of of being there as as the as the 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 promised ethnic group of of Israel. So. So I mean that kind of really plays into this that you know when Jesus says well there were other uh, there there were there were um, uh, uh, others in the land um, who had leprosy um, but Naaman was was healed and there were others there were widows in the land but but it was um, a widow from outside who was actually pr- provided for and so that actually kind of um, I mean that's quite provocative and in this particular episode of 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 luke we actually see that um the people are provoked to take violent action against jesus for 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 stating that someone of a different ethnic group should be included as an insider yes so uh, yeah thank you thank you for making that connection there's there's no culture there's no identity that is uh, sort of hermetically sealed off from others and so you can create the illusion of homogeneity of uniformity but it's it's never really there i mean mm-hmm. you, if you look at you know many things whether it's culturally linguistically you know in terms of you know, of custom and the ways of doing things and there's no sense in which anything that you know some white nationalist for instance in my own context might think of as uh, what it means to be american uh, is is free of influence of of things that are not of white European mm. origin, and that's that's always true. And it's uh, it's interesting. So uh, one of my recent books, not about science fiction, uh, is uh, what Jesus learned from women, and really the yep. the the one that is sort of the classic example of that, other than Jesus' mother, because everyone learns from their mom, is the story of the the Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman who yeah, uh, yep. talks back to Jesus. And, mm. and I think exploring that, even though it's, it, it can be challenging to do that within the framework of certain uh, understandings of Christology and things like that, uh, it, it raises sometimes some things that people need to wrestle with. But none of us is uh, brought up in a way that is completely free of, of some biases and prejudices and stereotypes mm. and things like that. And the most we can hope for is an openness to having those challenged as, as we go on. Uh, whether it's possible that we ever could accomplish a, a situation in which everybody is brought up to, <laughs> to not stereotype and not do those things. How much of that is biological is another question. Uh, we may have some instincts that get us into trouble. Uh, but ultimately, I think that Jesus gives us the example of what it means to be, you know, sort of the best human being one can be. And that is... Uh, to, mm. you know, not to be born without, you know, and brought up without any types of biases towards one's own culture or things like that, any kinds of assumptions about others, influencing one from mm. the wider culture, but being open to having that challenged, the narrowness challenged. And so I think that's an important aspect of, of the, the human story of Jesus uh, and how, how his, mm. his own emphasis on this, you know, when he uh, preaches and talks to others uh, comes about. And certainly it's very easy for us to slip into this idea that Jesus was free of unconscious bias and that had some divine quality, a, a purity. When we when we look at Renaissance art, we see the, the halo behind the head that kind of uh, says that uh, he, 
that that Christ's feet uh, walk lightly on the earth, untarnished by everything that's around. And so it's quite confronting in some ways to unpack that story in that way and go, well, actually, it's not about being free from unconscious bias. It's about how we respond when we become conscious of it. It's almost that red pill, red pill, blue pill um, effect that comes into play in the Matrix um, as we, we, we have a choice to say, well, do we... When we when we glimpse the entrance to the rabbit hole, do we go down into it, or do we do we retreat back into our our comfortable space? Yes, I think that, you know that's another thing that unites sort of the story of Jesus and Deep Space Nine uh, and the Star Trek franchise as a whole, is you know challenging our instinct to retreat from that which makes us uncomfortable. Right there, mm. there's been a willingness to turn attention to things like uh, to uh, racism already in the uh, the original series. Uh, the original series made some steps regarding you know sexism in that there was you know there was an officer on the bridge and things like that. On the other hand, mm-hmm. oh gosh, there's a whole lot of sexism in the, the original oh, series, yes. <laughs> uh, which you know if you watched it you know when you were I was I was very young when I watched it and so was not uh, sensitized to those things in quite the same way and uh, uh, oblivious to some things, but. Yeah, uh, the only way to be a fan of Star Trek is to appreciate how it's grown, right, and how its own vision mm. of, you know, of of women, then of gender, of uh, of race, of identity, uh, has grown and expanded, and it has it has a a positive aim from the outset, and yet it does better as the franchise develops, and there's a sense yep. in which. Uh, sort of the story of Jesus invites us into that just as you know it doesn't say you know he was wise in his mother's womb right what the gospel of Luke says is he grew in wisdom and Mm. that that's part of being human and that's what we need to aspire to and ironically when we insist that we you know in order to be on the right side we must already be wise and have all the answers it can actually prevent us from growing in wisdom in the way that the Gospel of Luke says Jesus did. Well, that's that Dunning-Kruger um, curve that they talk about, that that uh, when we know very little about something, we can feel very confident in, in our small knowledge. Um, as we learn more about something, it's actually quite natural for us to actually feel less confident as we discover the universe is much bigger than we expected. And that's an uncomfortable feeling. And it's not surprising that mm. uh, people don't don't rush to have that feeling, right? It's not a natural instinct to, to want to feel uh, like you know less about things and are less in control of things and uh, less in control of the, inf- the relevant information. And as somebody who's... Uh, life is dedicated to uh, education, right? That's sort of the, the career and vocation that I've gone into. Figuring out how to invite people, how to make the case that you should allow yourself to be made uncomfortable is is one of those mm. things. And I think sometimes one of the things that's helpful in doing that is something like Star Trek. It's where we learn, isn't yeah. it? When we, when we um, can find a, a safe way to enter into our discomfort is when we actually are able to learn something new. I mean, I guess that's what all of our educational institutions would strive to be, would be um, safe, uncomfortable spaces. 
Yeah, safe, uncomfortable space is an interesting way of putting it, right? Because the the sort of the the safety or or the the comfort of something like Star Trek is is deceptive in the sense that it's 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 like the story of of the the widow of Sidon or of Naaman. It's like it becomes mm. part of part of somebody's uh, heritage of storytelling, and then. Mm. One, if if somebody has a an overly narrow view, somebody else can come along and challenge and say, "So, have you thought about Naaman in that story, right? As Jesus does in that sermon, mm. or yeah, well, have you thought about Worf and his identity and how mm. he's made to feel in this yep. context?" And and so, there's that ability of stories to uh, to connect with us on one level and then to sort of covertly introduce us to things that push us and stretch us in ways that uh, we might not have sought out, right? We might not have sought out stories that we knew would do that. And so it's one of the great things about storytelling in general. But Star Trek, Star Trek does, uh, does a lot that's uh, really helpful in this particular area, I think. And it's interesting we've spent some time now talking about the 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 obvious outsider um fitting in so like you know the klingon in human space odo in uh, on the space station but but then we've also got um uh this idea that's on the opposite side of that is where a person is able to pass um inside another another racial group um and and the, there's a sense in which you know this becomes I was listening to an article on the radio. I just happened to be in the car, and they were talking about how there was the one-drop rule in terms of racial uh, identity. That if you had one drop of an of of another racial blood, then you were considered that. And so that that meant that that in the history of the United States, for example, um, if you had only the smallest amount of African American blood, then you had to sit in the back of the bus. Uh, and you could be held for criminal charges if you actually didn't do that, even if you could pass. And so there's this this whole idea of deception as well about when we if we if we know something about ourselves and and we hide it. Um, and I, and I think that really, like that shows up strongly in this episode in the relationship between uh, the Klingons uh, and the blood testing. Like this whole idea to say. We we know that the shapeshifters can pass as one of us, and that makes them, it makes them even more frightening. Um, it means that they're even more dangerous because they could be amongst us, and we could not even know. Um, uh, so I, I am interested in in exploring some of that aspect as well. That the there's this, this there's the fear of of racial impersonation um, is is very prominent with the Dominion threat. Yes, yeah. Uh, that's oh, thank you for bringing that up uh, because I mean that's something that I've I've given a lot of thought about. I'm I'm not sure what a better way of approaching some of these things, you know, because you know if, if you think about you know somebody like you know Barack Obama is a great example, right? I mean, mm, in terms yep. of his mother's sort of appearance and ethnic identity, I mean she was you know unambiguously white. Uh, his mm. father was. You know, actually African, and so it was unambiguously black. Uh, and mm. yet, because of the history of racism in terms of you know how people were categorized, you know he is black. And while I don't want to sort of in any way you know question his the significance of having him as the first black president, the the very terminology of referring to him this way, you know, if you are 
have a, a white parent or a black parent, you're black, right? There's something, mm-hmm. there's something there that people don't always think about, right? Uh, why yeah. isn't he white? Because one of his parents is white. And so the, the very categorization is you know, treating the whiteness as the default and the European ancestry as the default. And if that's diluted, then it's whatever you know, dilutes it. You know, it. It reflects the history of racism that developed this terminology originally. And yep. you know, the question I keep asking is, you know, how could we refer to you know, sort of shades of skin color in ways that don't reflect that, that racist uh, heritage? Right, so that uh, as with with hair color, right, you can it's like there's there's red and blonde and black, but you can have sort of sandy brown and you can have you know reddish brown and you know there are these these in between uh, states and mixtures, and they're just descriptors, right? While there are people mm-hmm. who do have certain prejudices against people of some particular hair color occasionally, but it's it's much it, it's much less of a thing than. Uh, the question of skin color and things like that, and yeah, yeah. and precisely because in uh, in the United States historically, uh, in in Australia historically, but all around the world now because of the ease of mobility, uh, there there are no appearances that are sort of are you know as it were uh, pure and likely to stay pure for centuries to come, right? As people move around the world, yeah, and, yeah. and so. The, the, that's that's another one of those things which I think I think the Dominion is is less of a case because they really are you know I mean being a, a shapeshifter you know that gives us more of a chance I think to talk about sort of cultural identity and navigating that and sort of changing one's appearance in ways that uh, very few of us can right I mean we need to we need pl- plastic surgery or something to really try to rework how we look physically but people do uh yeah there there is the question of sort of cultural identity and things like that but i i liked your your point because the the history of you know doing things like blood testing and looking for signs of of some other culture that interferes with purity i mean isn't an inherently racist undertaking and the story at at the very least even if it's a very different sci-fi scenario uh should prompt us to talk about that yeah Yep, yep. And look, one of the things that I hope uh, that Star Trek forecasts for us is that, you know, once we get, uh, once the Vulcans make first contact with us in 2063, when Zephyrin Cochran takes his first warp flight, uh, so that's not too many years away now, 2063, where, what are we looking at, uh, 20, uh, sorry, uh, what, uh, 41 years from now? Um, uh, my children might still be alive, um, you know, in 2063, um, that, that there will be this sense that humanity will, 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 um, reach a point of unity because we'll, um, we'll have met the Vulcans, um, we'll discover that, that there are, there are, that, that there is a level of othering beyond ourselves that we can now engage in that will actually mean that we'll, we'll stop othering each other. Um, it's a bit sad that we need that to in order to 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 achieve it, but there there is that sense in which we, we human humanity becomes homogenized in some ways when it st- gets placed in that that galactic um, context. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll I'll add that I hope we don't have to uh, get to uh, 
uh, the significance of Zephyrum Cochran's uh, creation of the Warp Drive uh, by the same route that uh, the same historical yeah, route yeah. that's followed in the the sort of the pre that would require a nuclear holocaust. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's you know part of our storytelling. You know, both in you know whether it's ancient Israelite prophecy or uh, modern science fiction is to encourage us to avoid certain things that are are uh, depicted. Mm. But yes, there's all over science fiction there's the arrival of the alien other who then prompts humanity to finally unite uh, against this this other threat and mm. you know, the irony is that if we could do that in the face of such a such a circumstance then we could have done it all along right and so it's just that we weren't willing and so what it what that exposes, I think, is that ultimately we will sacrifice the things that are uh, we say are important to us for self-preservation, you know, in the interest of self-preservation. But we do the things that we do, and we other others uh, among our own uh, uh, planetary inhabitants, also motivated by you know self-preservation, right? And so yeah, uh, that's another place where I think there's this connection with the the uh, teaching of Jesus and things of that sort because you know, nobody I think you know, very, well very few people I won't say nobody but very few people think that they are evil right most people think mm-hmm. that they are good that they are doing something heroic uh, if they seek to you know, get rid of an other that they feel threatens them whether it's threatening their identity threatening their their political uh, freedom whether it's something else and so, you know, it's if you are if you are involved in organized crime, it's often because you have to look out for your family, your group, as opposed to others, right? And there there may be a, a code of loyalty within that. And so, well, the large uh, number of uh, of Italian and Irish mafia who are devout Catholics um, and um, would uh, would would attend church every Sunday morning. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and so the the story of Jesus, you know, uh, and the teaching of Jesus as it unfolds and develops. So it invites us to, you know, to to not wait until some crisis uh, forces us to do that, or, and to not wait until some crisis uh, leads to us engaging in conflict with others, but to mm. actually, you know, recognize the other, you know, sort of, from the outset and embrace and define us, you know, as widely as possible, and yep. yeah, and Star Trek. Yeah, I think I think there are, there are parables at the very least in Star Trek that are relevant to this, mm. and I think there's a sense in which the story is a whole, uh, but this episode in particular is about you know just how much unity in diversity can there be, right? Uh, because yep. uh, the more diverse the participants in any kind of alliance or uh, broader collective identity, uh, the the more fragile it is, and yep. There are extents to which there can be an alliance between Klingon and Federation, but even within the Federation, right, there are different cultures that are that don't uh, don't always appreciate one another, right? And so there's a live and let live mm. attitude. And so Star Trek, you know, the grand narrative of Star Trek, you know, one of its things that it is about is how do we do unity? How much unity can we have? Mm. And then, you know, if, if something like the Borg shows up, then question of of assimilation and uniformity and things like that. 
Uh, is there a limit? Is there yeah. a point at which the attempt to have all-encompassing unity actually is so so diametrically opposed to maintaining diversity that mm. it's better not to do that, right? It, that, unity at that cost is not worth it, you know. And I'm really pleased uh, you you've gone in that direction because that was the other thing in the in the short amount of time we've got left that I wanted to to cover today was actually that idea of the just war, mm. um, you know, in in this particular case, um, I mean, I, I think more so than any other Star Trek I've ever watched, war is at the centre of this episode. The thing to remember is that the Klingons prefer to use their knives and battleths in close combat. So if we get boarded, you can expect severe lacerations, broken bones, and blunt force traumas. All I can say is keep calm, remember your training, and do the best that you can, report to your posts. Um, that we actually see war, we see, we see hand-to-hand -hand combat, we see more phaser fire and starship explosions than, than even some of the movies mm. I've watched. They must have had an incredible budget for this one. Because um, sometimes you might see one or two phaser shots in an episode or one um, starship explode. But in this one, there was like scene after scene of uh, the, the, the space station firing photon torpedoes and taking them down. So, so there does come a time where we have to say this far and no further. Um, there, 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 I guess there is a, a time, um, as it says in Ecclesiastes, a time for peace and a time for war. Um, and, and, and it can be really complex to try and work out, um, when those times are. Yes. And that's why I think, you know, it's, it's important to think about this, that, you know, we all have, uh, competing identities, you know, and diverse identities, you know, every one of us, we all have different values and it's not whether one values loyalty or values sort of impartiality it's how you relate those to one another in particular contexts right mm. and in the same way people are often accused of hypocrisy if they're not willing to embrace those who are opposed to diversity right somebody like a nazi or a you know, an ardent nationalist mm. or something uh, within their diversity, right? But it's just like you can't sort of welcome the Borg into the Federation because yes, you, you can be committed to the, the Vulcan ideal of infinite diversity and infinite combinations. But if you welcome in someone who's opposed to that, then you're on one level, you know, embrace of absolute inclusivity is going to lead to the elimination of that diversity within this this yeah, monolithic yeah. Borg culture that will um, assimilate everything. And so, so we always have, you know, uh, different identities, and we need to navigate them. And there is there is no way to just value one thing. And even those mm -hmm. who value uh, peace, you know, or in, whether it's a military peace and avoidance of conflict in that level. Or avoiding getting in unnecessary arguments uh, will re usually recognize that there are moments when just maintaining the peace is actually harming the peace because you're yeah, letting others uh, other you know you're letting the, the bullies that you don't want to upset uh, whether it's in your 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 country or your church uh, let me throw that in there yeah. um, basically be the ones who drive the conversation 
And sometimes we have to be very creative about that. Like I love the creative scene in this one where um, they need to let Cardassia know the Klingons are on their way, but the Federation has decided to take a position of non-interference. And so Cisco invites Garrick to come and measure him for a new suit. And I, I thought that was actually a really interesting um, way of actually exploring the creative ways that that we can be we can be um, engaged in in a, in attempting to to subvert um, the 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 direction of things um, without actually entering into a into a conflict with our ideals or our ethics. Yeah, I think I'm actually glad you mentioned that because that was one one of the things that I that struck me in the episode was because there is. A, a fair a, a fair amount of cultural understanding collectively among the the, the people on Deep Space Nine. Uh, there's both an understanding of specific cultures that feature in this episode, but also of what cultural difference is. Period, because it's it's so integral to Deep Space Nine as a station. They they navigate these matters right. So in a way that you know doesn't. You know, recognizes that for the Klingons, honor is important, and so you need to approach things in this way. You can't just go in and do yep. this and expect it to have the result that it would if you were doing it with a completely different people. Uh, and so, that question of how do we how do we respect the other, even while maybe working against some of their aims, right? How do we have that mm. sort of acknowledgement of their culture and take it into account? Uh, sometimes, obviously, that can be used against them in a in a matter of subterfuge and it, it works pretty well in this episode but it that yes. has to be part of our part of our international relations and our uh, relationships with others across difference absolutely one thing that occurred to me too on a lighter note um is is garrick um his position as a tailor a cardassian tailor um is far more humiliating um than i anticipated when I recall that Cardassians just tend to wear grey nondescript clothing, um, just about every Cardassian we've ever seen, they're not really into fashion, are they? Uh, you know, the the only flamboyantly bright uh, individual I've ever seen from the Cardassian Empire is is Garrick himself. So to be a Cardassian tailor would be, um, well, well, not not exactly a, a prized position, I imagine. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough. And I wonder whether that's actually something that they thought about, like having the Cardassians all dress in a sort of nondescript, you know, non-flamboyant, not very striking fashion. Is that almost a, a, a nod to the, it's like, oh yeah, he's a tailor. Sure he is. It's like, that's plausible yep. that that's a profession that that's he would right. really have. Um, so I don't know. It's that. Uh, thank you for pointing that out to me because I hadn't thought about that. So often uh, I find when we're retro reviewing these episodes that are now 20 years old and actually nearly 30 years old, um, you know, I, I actually uh, wonder what was intended and what's been retconned or headcanoned or fanficked into place. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I've, I'm so familiar with the universe that potentially... Uh, and, and often my family accuses me of making more of it than there actually is. Um, but I, I think that's also part of the fun of science fiction, is uh, it, it, we have these um, 
opportunities to go down rabbit holes and to explore things that that maybe were never the intention of the original writers directors or artists but but actually even today they continue to provide us with 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 a rich understanding and 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 I guess that's where I might suggest that uh, that that science fiction is a is a living word in in much the same way as the biblical text is that 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 uh, that that uh, any time we approach text with creative imagination, it gives us an opportunity to fanfic our way around. I know that's one of your passions. Uh, so as we come to the end today, um, you want to speak a little bit about your passion for um, for Christian fan fiction. <laughs> Uh, well, if you're thinking of Christian fan fiction, I mean, there's a whole history of storytelling. Uh, oftentimes, people are not familiar with some of the extra-canonical literature, uh, and there are retellings even within within the Bible itself. Uh, but the thing that you mentioned that I really was thinking of is that as we think about how we watch an episode from Deep Space Nine several decades after its original creation, it's so obvious to us that we'll take things from it, we'll find things in there that are uh, not likely to have been intended because our context has changed, mm. at least somewhat. Yep. And we're aware of that, uh, especially if we've watched it before and then are watching it again. And yet we can forget when reading a te- text like those in the Bible that we read them in a different context than the one that they were created mm. in. And so to the extent that we find them speaking to us, to our time, often it involves meaning that goes beyond anything that was explicitly intended. Uh, the, the general point might be there, but this is going beyond that. And maybe maybe in Jesus in ta- telling the stories that he did in the way that he did in that sermon in Luke that you mentioned earlier is, <clears throat> is doing something similar, is taking those stories and saying, you know, there's a part of this that we don't, you know, there's a further implication in this, uh, whether... Whether yeah. that implication was there all along, intended by the authors who worked in the story of Naaman, is it to challenge narrow ethnocentric views of uh, religion and identity? Maybe, but maybe not. Right? Maybe it's something that uh, it you know it takes later interpreters thinking in a a context that has raised issues of pluralism in a different way uh, to think about. Yep. And so, yeah, as we revisit these stories, I'm yeah. There's plenty of room for fan fiction and for headcanon. Fan fiction. And those things are relevant to religion and to uh, reading the Bible as well. And it's so easy for us to completely disregard that meta fourth wall that sort of sits there, especially when we look at that, that Luke 4 passage we've been talking about today. Um, you know, uh, on Sunday I was preaching to a congregation about Jesus, preaching to a congregation mm. about a historical biblical event. Mm. So I was preaching on historical biblical event now. Jesus was preaching about a historical biblical event then. And so, you know, we're, we're actually caught up inside this ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff when we actually start to look at it that way. It kind of... Um, it, it's very easy for us to miss that nuance that actually says, well, um, all, all of this is actually in, in context uh, then in context um, in its telling in context now um, that 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 um, unless we actually let let all those dimensions actually sit around what what we're talking about then we, we're going to miss um, a, a large portion of what the story could be about for us 
Well, look, thank you for joining me today. Um, it's been a, a fabulous start to season four. Um, so much in this, and we could keep talking. Yeah. You know, we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, Chancellor Gowron's eyes uh, <laughs> and the way they stick out of his head, um, or uh, or the 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 new um, um, General Martok character mm. who's going to be coming in. Um, the growing relationship between Cassidy Yates mm. and um, and um, Ben Sisko. Mm. Um, so there's there's a whole lot of stuff yeah. you know that we could have done a whole other podcast on. Um, but uh, I, I'm I'm really feeling like I've I've had a good meal. I feel I feel satisfied with the the, the conversation we've had um, over the last hour um, and, and and looking at um, the things we've looked at. So. So I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to get the season off to a great start, James. Oh, it's it's been a delight. It's always a delight talking uh, talking Star Trek, uh, talking Deep Space Nine, Deep Faith Nine with you. Uh, thanks for having me on, and live long and prosper. And same to you. Uh, today is a good day to live. <laughs> this has been the Deep Faith Nine podcast uh, uh, from Never Odd or Even Media. Uh, please consider becoming a Patreon uh, at Never Odd or Even Media uh, Patreon site um, to support um, the, the, the ongoing costs of producing this and other media. Um, don't forget that uh, Voyager Season 3 um, with a fantastic crew of Lindsay Cullen and Elizabeth Rain and myself um, will we'll also be restarting this week. Um, and um, I uh, invite you to uh, leave your comments on the Facebook site, Never Odd or Even, um, and um, engage with the, the, the rich uh, conversation that James and I have had today. Uh, and if you've got some um, particular ideas about where you'd like to see the nexus of faith and fiction continue in the Never Odd or Even setup, then please um, let us know on that same Facebook page. Uh, or send us an email to neverodoreven.me at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been the Deep Faith Nine podcast for Never Odd or Even. Deep Faith Nine is a Never Odd or Even production.